In the first hours of May 12th, a plan went into motion that would leave five dead in Centerville, Texas. That day, 28 Texas Department of Criminal Justice employees would break or outright ignore security policies, allowing a convicted killer to escape. At 12.48 a.m., TDCJ officer Randall Smith dropped two red bags at the cell of Gonzalo Lopez, a cartel hitman serving back-to-back life sentences. Lopez was scheduled for transfer from Gatesville's Hughes unit to the maximum security Estelle unit in Huntsville for a doctor's appointment. About an hour later, Smith and officer Bernard Gachard let Gonzalo Lopez out of his cell, skipping a required strip search and hand restraints. Smith took Lopez's transport bag, then dropped it off with another cell. Moments later, Sergeant Joshua Watson passed that bag to an inmate without checking what was inside. TDCJ calls this incident trafficking, and it would happen more than once that day. Since that incident, Smith has been recommended for termination, Watson's pay was cut, he was suspended for a week, and will serve 19 months probation. At least three other officers would also be let go over what happened next. Just after 9.30, it was time to go. Officers Gerardo Velasquez and Dylan Miller strip-searched Lopez. But records show they look away and don't search the killer's clothes. It's the first of several searches that disregard TDCJ security policies. On the way out, officers let Lopez drop his mattress and blanket with an inmate, another trafficking violation TDCJ says is a fireable offense. Later that hour, Lopez gets another botched strip search. His leg restraints are put on wrong, and officers skip a required metal detector search of his mouth and other cavities. At 11.11, Gonzalo Lopez and 15 other inmates leave Gatesville, headed to Huntsville. Officer Randy Smith drives the bus, while Officer Jimmy Brenniger watches over prisoners. Within two hours, Gonzalo Lopez is on the loose. There are still no confirmed sightings of Lopez or any reason to indicate that he escaped this area. Brand new information from TDCJ this morning indicates that there was no other suspicious activity when Gonzalo Lopez was being transported on that bus from Gatesville to Huntsville. They did determine that he escaped his restraint somehow and was also able to cut his way through a secure barrier door to gain access to the driver. Mitchell Roth has taught criminology across the world. He's an expert on law enforcement, prisons, and gang crimes. From his office at Sam Houston State University, it's a short 20-minute drive to the Estelle unit, where Gonzalo Lopez never arrived on May 12th. Today on Reckless, Roth breaks down what security protocols were ignored, how the search for Gonzalo Lopez went wrong, and how the prison system can get it right next time. I think a lot of times when there's a big problem, we as humans instinctively like try to look for that one thing that went wrong and that set the whole thing in motion and and created this catastrophe. But this report, based on what I have read and the just everything together, it seems like there were a lot of things that failed, a lot of procedures that failed that created this tragic catastrophe. Yeah, there wasn't just one problem. It was kind of a cascade of problems. And, uh, you know, there's supposed to be all these built-in redundancies as far as uh, the security protocol goes. If none of them are being followed, then it makes it kind of worthless. 
the very idea that they were allowed to bring personal items onto the bus without it being searched and with them being uh, trusted to put the list of what is inside these bags. Also, the whole thing about dressing in uh, whatever clothes they want to wear rather than uh, some type of uniform. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. You know, perfect storm of mistakes. You really have to look in the beginning of all of this. And the main problem is just not having enough staff because you can't do all of these tasks with a limited amount of correctional officers. And the Hughes unit um, is even worse off as far as lacking officers than most of the other units. What are restricted inmates doing being held at this place and being transported with over 40% positions unfilled? So they're being required to do more tasks than they were hired to for their positions. And, you know, it's human nature really sometimes, you know, not to follow through on some of these. And it seems like a lot of human nature was uh, demonstrated in the process of this escape. You mentioned the human nature, and I often think about we, I think, as a society, expect law enforcement officers, correction officers to behave almost as robots. That training is in place, but we are still humans. And even if we don't have enough with this funding and understaffing and things like that, what is it going to take to address this? This is not an overnight solution, unfortunately, and something that seems is only getting worse the longer we let it um, get as severe as it is. A lot of the suggestions in the reports, you know, I think are very doable, but you have to address the situation of how you're going to retain corrections officers, if they can get safer and uh, easier jobs for more money on the outside. I think it's been historically, the position has not been the most respected position in the criminal justice system. And I think uh, that there should be some type of outreach to making it a much more professional occupation, you know, like being a police officer in law enforcement. In order to do that, I think they have to do a better job at recruiting Police departments are constantly going to schools and recruiting uh, criminal justice students and so forth. And uh, I think that that wouldn't be a bad idea to do TDCJ simply for the fact to educate people on, you know, what the job is about and, you know, how important a job it really is. Of course, this case attracted a lot of attention. But as far as what you have seen in the report, are these problems and concerns within TDCJ, are they new or are they something that is just now getting attention because of the magnitude of this? Well, I think a lot of the issues have been ongoing. I remember doing an interview in 1999 when they had the escape from death row. They've been looking statewide on the chance he's not over there in the wooded area. And their hunt will go on. We haven't lost one yet. 90% of them we catch right on our property. The other 10%, the criminal investigators bring back. And uh, how that changed everything as far as, you know, where prisoners were held and how death row inmates used to be allowed to work in general population. I come from the old school. Death row inmates, in my opinion, should be locked up around the clock, not out in the pot area till 11 o'clock at night. And a lot of it was because guards were taking shortcuts the night before the escape took place. You know, looking in a cell and seeing a dummy of a body when in reality it wasn't a person. I mean, these things, you know, happen everywhere, you know, from escape from Alcatraz and so forth. And prisoners are very cagey. They have so much time on their hands to, you know, observe the watchers. So it's like the watchers being watched. 
I think one of the things, too, is recognizing that a person that has been caught trying to escape in the past would be uh, somebody you wouldn't want on one of these transports. Evidently, uh, Lopez had on his record that he had tried to escape before. And so not only did they not check him properly, he was, you know, kind of a walking red flag to a great extent. The books, his background. And one of the things I was struck by is he had an hour and a half at sawing at the restricted area to get in there. It makes you wonder, you know, how far away was the officer in the back? I know that there was a lot of commotion going on on the bus and that sort of thing. I also think in a situation like this, I'm not real certain, there should be consequences for inmates that are on a bus that take part in helping an inmate escape. There should be something to fear from that. And I don't know what happened to any of the inmates that were on the bus. You know, to their credit, none of them tried to escape along with uh, Lopez, although he offered them the choice. And, uh, you know, I remember reading in the report, you know, one guy said he was thinking of going until he thought, well, he's going to kill the guards. You know, I don't want the needle. And that stopped him from doing that. So there is some rationale among the prisoners. People that end up in prison quite often lack uh, impulse control. In this situation, it, it demonstrates, too, they're capable of making decisions in their own best interests. That's interesting you say that because I was wondering, you know, does something like this embolden prisoners who have nothing but time to think about ways or do they see it as a cautionary tale? I can only get away for so long, but they will eventually catch me. Well, I think it's a little bit of both of those, but also it's like a learning moment. They will probably study, you know, what went wrong, how he was caught. Maybe they'll recognize that it's not a good idea to commit murders when you're in the case of doing this. But it all comes back to if you have nothing to lose. You're going to take any of these chances, make any of these choices. And so the whole point should be not shipping anybody on these transports that has nothing to lose in an escape attempt. That's basically unleashing a danger onto the whole community. It seems like these inmates have nothing but time. And if they have the desire to learn how to do more, quote unquote, bad things, they will find a way to do it. Do we have enough people on the good guy team, for lack of a better... also studying all this so that we are proactive and not reactive to situations like this? Well, you know, I don't know, because most of this goes on behind closed doors. It's not like TDCJ goes to, you know, academics that have studied prison escapes and things like that and, you know, ask for their type of input. So when you have basically just one source of information or one way of thinking, you're eliminating the potential to have other insight that would be very important. I mean, I've studied prison escapes for a long time. I've studied prisons for a long time, but I've never once been contacted by the TDCJ for any of my um, knowledge. And um, I'll be dead in a few years, so (laughs) they're going to miss all of that. You know, but I'd be glad to, uh, you know, share any of, you know, my knowledge or any of my thoughts. Uh, And this isn't just TDCJ. This is law enforcement in general. If you look at 9-11, no one in terrorism or anything like that conceived of such a plan ever happening of flying, you know, planes into a building. Yet there'd been Hollywood movies that have suggested this scenario, perhaps to suggest that there's not enough imagination when it comes to the justice system. And you might include people that aren't traditionally considered someone that might be able to help or, you know, bring up these points. Now outside the prison walls, Inmates say Gonzalo Lopez was talking about an escape. 
The bus got loud and almost immediately, Officer Jimmy Brenniger, who was in charge of monitoring the prisoners, couldn't see what was going on. Still, the bus kept moving. Your kid's school bus has video cameras, but in May 2022, TDCJ wasn't using them while transporting inmates across Texas. They have since begun testing them. Inmates say Lopez asked if they were ready to rock and roll, then pulled out two long metal weapons and a handcuff key from his mouth. Lopez quickly removed his restraints and spent the next 90 minutes sawing a hole through the metal gate separating bus driver Randy Smith. At 1.15 p.m., Smith felt a tug at his handgun. Smith covered his gun and tried to stop the bus. But the sudden stop flung Lopez into the driver's compartment. Reports say Lopez and Smith struggled, falling out of the bus, where Lopez stabbed Officer Smith in the hand with a metal weapon. That weapon was never found. Back on the bus, Officer Brinegar exited the back door with a 12-gauge shotgun. He sees the struggle and yells at Lopez to stop. But Lopez makes it back on the bus and puts it into gear. Brinegar shoots twice. Lopez starts driving away and Brinegar fires another two rounds. The officers are left in the dust as Gonzalo Lopez hijacks the bus with 15 other inmates on board. As the bus pulls onto Highway 7, Officer Smith grabs the shotgun and fires one round, blowing out the right rear tire. Sean O'Reilly, chief of police for the city of Jewett, was driving on Highway 7 and pulled up to the officers, clearly in distress on the side of the road. He sped off in pursuit of the runaway bus, leaving both officers behind. A truck eventually pulled up to Brinegar and Smith and took them back to their now-wrecked bus, where Gonzalo Lopez was nowhere to be found. Law enforcement would search rural Leon County for more than a week, bringing in dogs, command posts, and hundreds of staff as temperatures approached 100 degrees. Law enforcement is shifting strategy in their search for Gonzalo Lopez, the inmate who escaped. A Survival experts we spoke to said there was almost no way Gonzalo Lopez had survived by hiding in the underbrush. And there is still no signs of capital murderer Gonzalo Lopez. He escaped from a TDC. And on May 20th, TDCJ said their search was officially leaving Leon County, focused on new leads across the state. And still no signs of capital murderer Gonzalo Lopez. He escaped a TDCJ prison bus in Leon County. Along with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, along with other law enforcement agencies looking for him in other areas besides Leon County. But less than two weeks later, law enforcement learned of a burglary in the area where Lopez escaped. Fingerprints and DNA samples taken from the scene were sent off for testing. The public was never told. On June 2nd, a concerned family member contacted law enforcement after 66-year-old Mark Collins and his four grandsons hadn't checked in while staying at their weekend home in Centerville. When law enforcement arrived at the ranch, they found a gruesome scene. Mark Collins and his grandsons, brothers 18-year-old Waylon, 16-year-old Carson, and 11-year-old Hudson, and their 11-year-old cousin Bryson were found murdered in the home. 
That same day, the DNA and fingerprint tests came back, positively identifying Lopez as the intruder. Lopez was killed hours later in a shootout with law enforcement near San Antonio. Residents are still rattled after that lengthy manhunt and the deaths of Mark, Waylon, Carson, Bryson, and Hudson Collins. TDCJ announced Friday a number of new transport measures to prevent inmates from escaping in the future. But Next came shock, then grief, and outrage. Accountability became the battle cry of the brokenhearted. Even state leaders jumped on board. We should never again allow a capital murderer serving a life sentence travel across the state in a bus. There was a failure there. They're not supposed to ever get out of their handcuffs or their shackles. But more than six months later, the Centerville community and Collins family say justice has not been served. So based on your knowledge, what you have seen in previous cases, what you've seen in the report, do you anticipate any disciplinary actions? And if so, what would those look like within TDCJ? Well, you know, I, I expect there will be some disciplinary um, action, but, uh, you know, then again, it depends on whose, uh, you know, decision is going to, who's going to make this because, you know, I, I imagine most of the, the heavy decision making comes from the top, from Governor Abbott's office. And, you know, you haven't really heard anything from state officials. You know, it's mostly been, you know, within TDCJ. Also, I don't think Department of Public Safety has released their report yet, you know, their findings. And they were involved partially in the uh, search process. And so, you know, you don't know how much they communicate with each other how much they share because, you know, there's a certain bit of turf battles that go on between different police departments and correctional offices and, and that sort of thing. And of course, TDCJ wants to maintain its reputation as a forward-thinking uh, prison system, which it is highly respected in most cases around the country. So they don't want to put any blemishes on that. To look back at Harry Truman, it's very easy to pass the buck in situations like this. I think what they have to do, though, is look deep inside themselves and figure out, well, how can we have more correctional officers, have a better ratio of prisoners to officers? And this is a problem around the world. It's not just in America because we you know, are so keen on locking people up. And the problem is, is that there are other alternatives uh, to locking up a lot of inmates that, you know, have mental problems and things like that. And, uh, you know, we just have had this love affair with the prison in America for over 100 years. And so, of course, this report has some suggestions on things TDCJ can change. How long, best case scenario, I guess, does it take for TDCJ to implement some of these, all of these and do they make a difference? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with budget issues. When, what, you know, what time of year budget decisions are made because it's not like they can, you know, put money into things that they don't have. So there's a lot of lobbying that goes on in Austin and getting the uh, money to facilitate change. I think all of these changes uh, that they suggest can, can be done with the right budgeting, the right manpower. But also, too, there's, you know, a lot of things like using telemedicine more perhaps not letting prisoners know when the uh, movement of prisoners to uh, a doctor's appointment is going to be so they can prepare possibly a some type of an escape attempt and that sort of thing was that information is supposed to be a confidential but apparently it was leaked in this case and in other cases that they knew which day they were going very simple things like you know having them not wear boots uh having them wear slip-on shoes 
having them wear just their boxer shorts when they leave their cell and given the clothes that they're going to wear. I mean, these are all kind of common sense things. But, you know, another thing uh, that, you know, bears repeating, for a couple of years, these prison transports weren't happening because of COVID. And so perhaps a lot of the training was forgotten by people. Uh, They probably weren't considering the challenges in moving prisoners from one part of the prison system to another. You know, how much practice was done ahead of time? Because it seems like there's so many security lapses. And the most simple is, you know, a good search and pat down. But I've read that they're going to be doing a a lot more work in making correctional officers watch more training films, make supervisors more answerable to, you know, the operations that are conducted under them. Because in this case, a lot of the blame is being heaped on the correctional officers rather than supervisors and others that really, you know, should share the blame at least for, you know, the situation that took place. I mean, it's a blame game. Five innocent people were, you know, massacred, and it could have been stopped long before it got close to being a reality. You mentioned we were talking about DPS. They're also part of this investigation. Of course, they have also been focused on their investigation and dealing with their reports that they need to do following the shooting in Uvalde. They seem to be dealing with a blemish on their agency, their entire agency, TDCJ as well. How long does it take, do you think, for the public and the nation to see TDCJ as more than just this group of mistakes that led to a tragedy? Well, I think one of the issues here is the reputation Texas as a state has for violent crimes and things like that, and for you know having a, lar- a very large prison system that's over the years has been described as very punitive. So you have that, that it's hard to ever get past all of that. So when people hear, for instance, about a shooting or an escape from a prison in Texas, to them, it you know it doesn't sound the same as someone escaping from a prison in Utah or in Massachusetts. There's something about the history of Texas and its law enforcement apparatus and criminal justice system that has a certain mystique to it that you're never going to get rid of. There's so much stereotyping. When you tell someone you're from Texas, they think of people, you know, going to work on a horse and that sort of thing. And uh, they think of the Texas Rangers riding around, you know, uh, solving crimes and this and that on horses. And uh, they don't see the more modern aspects of the criminal justice system at work. It's just hard to change minds because this blemish, as you call it, I think, you know, will stay with the department until the next blemish. I'm sure most people don't even remember the escape from death row in 1999. In reality, there are a few parallels in that they had this massive manhunt and uh, they didn't catch the one person, Martin Garulli, who got over the wire. Two fishermen found his body in the Trinity River. That's how that came to an end. So in this particular case, uh, murder took place in a shootout. And so the problem with humans in bureaucracies is that change doesn't occur until there's some type of stimulus like this that gets the you know public opinion directed in one way or another. This is kind of will, will stimulate, I think, this change so that this doesn't happen again, or at least for another 20 years. I mean, there's been escapes from transports in other southern states where um, officers have been killed on the transports. There's been cases where prisoners that were on the bus actually sued the state because they weren't being properly protected when this escape took place. Early on in the investigation, I did some research on similar 
prison transport escapes around the country. And I was kind of surprised at, you know, variation in what took place, you know, after the escapes. And, uh, but it, it, it's rare, very rare. And uh, when you have a perfect storm of, uh, I guess, malfunction and mistakes, these things happen. Hopefully, I think we as a society want to learn more so that it, it, we can do our part. I know I don't work for TDCJ or have that connection, but I think we all strive to improve so that things like this don't happen again. Not so much just for the entertainment, because it is a horrible thing that, boy, so many times I think many of us, especially in this community, are like, did this actually happen? Because it does seem like just a horror movie from Hollywood. It's easy to blame different parties to this this tragedy and uh you know a lot of it has to do with the search process how it was conducted the communication with people in the communities that wasn't being shared evidently people didn't realize there had been a burglary and then they found out because of dna and fingerprints that it was lopez and that he had been in the area i remember early on talking about it you know figuring out after a couple of weeks that he couldn't still be in the area that he had been long gone and uh, I was very surprised when it turns out he was there and, you know, having that much time to search for him, it seems like the search didn't go on for maybe as long as it could have gone on. Really looking at the amount of manpower that was expended on it, the amount of, you know, thermal imaging from helicopters and horses and dogs and different multi-agency uh, search parties, how they didn't catch this guy earlier. But again, if he was wily enough to uh, try and get books on surviving in nature, you know, this guy was the real deal. But the problem, too, is he had nothing to lose, is the bottom line. If it had been somebody maybe that was due for a release in a couple of years or whatever, perhaps it would have been different. If only one thing were different. It's the same conclusion outside experts drew from the state's response. Just fixing one systemic problem could have kept the Collins family safe. Unfortunately, reports say leaders were too busy trying to juggle other problems. A chaos echoed on the ground in Leon County. On the next episode of Reckless, KBTX reporters Donnie Tuggle and Morgan Rydell walk us through those three messy weeks off Highway 7 in Centerville, where updates came from the parking lot of a Dairy Queen.